How's it going, everyone? This is Militant Thomist, and we got on Michael Hall for tonight. Michael, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I went to Reformation Bible College for an undergraduate in theology. Um, I took the Christian thought major is what they call it, um, which has, I think it's like seven electives, each of which are three credit hours. Um, and so I took all of those in philosophy. And then I also wrote a bachelor's thesis there on um, Wittgenstein's understanding of language and how that relates to ethics um, from his early to late period. So wrote a bachelor's thesis on Wittgenstein. I got to present a summary of that version at the uh, International Ludwig Wittgenstein Symposium in Croatia this past December. Um, and now I'm accepted at Franciscan University um, for a master's in philosophy. And that's where I'll be going to study in the fall. So just a nerd with a bunch of books. What's your research interests? Uh, research interests in philosophy kind of vary, um, but broadly speaking, they primarily focus on ethics or relate to ethics. So um, my interests in, for example, other topics like metaphysics and epistemology and philosophy of language, excuse me, derive their importance from my interest in the areas of ethics and metaethics. Um, specifically along the lines of, uh, for example, like the metaphysics of goodness was a topic I was really interested in. Um, currently, I'm in, really interested in um, how language shapes our concept of what's normative and then how that can be used to uh, kind of clarify the more abstract foundations of virtue ethics. Okay, great. So let's get into the meat of it. Um, why? I'm going to kind of do a little bit of a... Um, devil's advocate with you. Why in the world should I study philosophy as a theologian? Why does that matter? Pretend I don't know. Okay. So <laughs> do you? No, I'm just kidding. Um, so the question of why one should study philosophy, I think if you start with the question phrased as why should I study it as a theologian, the force of the issue is not properly felt. Um, I think you have to start with why should I study philosophy, period, not necessarily as a theologian or as a grammarian or this or that, but just why is philosophy useful to study on its own terms? So you're um, saying that you're going from an angle of as a man, I should uh, as a rational animal, I should study philosophy. Yes, that's the idea. I think if you ask. Why should I study philosophy? Because I'm a theologian. What you'll do is you'll limit the actual import to which philosophy can be used. And what you'll end up doing is you'll end up misconstruing what philosophy is because you'll only consider it in relationship to your specific discipline that you want to reapply the concepts to instead of trying to understand philosophy on its own terms. Um, it's like, hmm, I'm trying to think of an analogy. It's like a... It's like a person who studies physics, but then asks, well, what's the use of mathematics for physics? To study physics, you have to study mathematics on its own terms, maybe yeah. not to the same highest degree that a mathematician would. But if you were to exclude the possibility of asking the question, well, why do I need to study philosophy as a person, right, to bring the analogy back? Um, I think you just missed the point. So... Why, do you, why should you study philosophy, period? That's the question. Um, I would say 
that there's a variety of ways one could answer that question. Um, a recent uh, kind of idea that I've been toying with is um, that you don't have a choice, that human beings are doomed to philosophize. And so the question is not whether or not am I going to be doing philosophy, it's whether or not I'm going to be doing philosophy well or whether I'm going to be doing it poorly. Um, so I think that is a good way to start that question. Because if you say, well, I don't need to study philosophy, then I think what you're going to get into is if I ask you the question, what is justice? Unless you're going to take some type of extreme, like asceticism with respect to knowledge and be a kind of a person who advocates for like radical, like silence in the face of like human desire for knowledge and say that the desire for knowledge is irrelevant and what matters is like how we live or something. Even that's a philosophical perspective. I just don't think you can get out of it. Um, just being honest about the issue. So why study philosophy? Because you are doing philosophy already. You may not even know it. And if you are doing it and you don't understand the rules of the procedures, right? It's like a game. It's like, it's like, it's like saying, well, imagine if chess was a universal game that we all played without realizing it. And then you asked me, why do I need to understand how to play chess? And then I told you, well, because if you don't know the rules to chess, then you're going to make mistakes that are really stupid, like trying to move a pawn backwards, things that just break the definition of the thing you're doing. And so I think philosophy is extremely similar. So you have no choice. You will do philosophy. And so the question is why you should study it is so that you don't suck at it. Because if you suck at it, you're not going to be able to do anything well. Okay, so um, so in the in the relationships, keeping keeping in the in the abstract, with the relationship between philosophy and theology, how is philosophy theology's handmade? So, like the traditional scholastic kind of perspective, that philosophy is handmade to the queen of the sciences, which is theology. Yep. The idea there is that philosophy comes into the assistance of theology's considerations, and it provides concepts, um, structures, perhaps analogies, uh, analyses of language and other issues to assist and produce clarity for theological consideration, which can assist the theologian in understanding how to best articulate, say, a concept, maybe perhaps reframe a debate, right? Yeah. Um, like, I think you can see this, um, if I can speak outside my own area of expertise for a second, um, in the way that um, the reintroduction of Aristotelian language recasts the Eucharistic debates from Robertus and Retramnus's language of figure and sign in the ninth yeah. century, which is language that goes all the way back to Cyril of Jerusalem, at least, mm. if not previous. Even to Tertullian. Um, okay, yeah. So it goes all the way back, right? But then you start seeing with the reintroduction of certain philosophical categories um, like Aristotle, which I also think is a reductionistic perspective to say, well, it's just Aristotle. I think, no, it's also the the Neoplatonic interpretation of Aristotle, which is heavily at root, especially in the Islamic philosophers. But anyways, the reintroduction of like these explicitly philosophical constructs allows the Eucharistic debate to be given new shape and along the language mm -hmm. of substance and accidents, right? Which sparks a whole series of debates about what do those terms mean when related to this topic? How will those terms relate to one another? What is the metaphysics of the issue? What is the language of the issue? What is the epistemology? So on and so forth. So it can provide um, philosophy new horizon or theology new horizons 
in a certain sense. So it's a kind of so with, language. with the relationship between philosophy and theology, is philosophy adding new content to uh, the way in which we do theology? Or is it merely um, categorical and then logical uh, framing our framing our concepts that already are in um, theology? Say that again. Sorry, I was reading a comment. <laughs> <laughs> so when we um, so when we're thinking about the relationship between theology and philosophy, is philosophy mm -hmm. adding any new content to theology, or is it just uh, a framework of language and metaphysics? that we're um, not really imposing, but in which we're interpreting uh, the data we have from the apostolic deposit. So is it content latent or is it just a hermeneutic structure that you use? Yes. Which that's can what I'm be asking. arbitrarily altered. Okay. Yeah. So I would say it's both. Um, it, it can be both. Um, just because something is content latent doesn't mean that it can't operate as a hermeneutical structure. Any content latent theory also will argue or I'm sorry, also will operate as a hermeneutical structure. So for example, if you accept Aristotelian metaphysics as a content latent theory, you will then also use it hermeneutically when you try to interpret texts, right? Or mm -hmm. interpret topics. So I would say that the question is kind of, I would say the question lacks sufficient nuance because it will force you into pitting this concept of the application of an idea against the concept of the idea being considered on its own terms. Yeah. So I'm concerned about that. I, th I think that's a, I think you kind of see that in the Vantillian debates a little bit in the reform circles mm -hmm. where Vantill's concern is the content coming in. Um, but then also at the same time, won't bother to like use transcendental idealist language as a part of like a hermeneutical structure. And so I think it's both. So with the content aspect, what I would say is Yes, philosophy does provide new content to theology in the sense of nature always provides something for grace to operate on. Yeah. So like like you can like really if you want to just get, get down to like what the like the dogmatic Catholic position on the subject would be. Sorry, drinking beer, it's making me burp. Um <laughs> the dogmatic Catholic position would just be simply that the relationship between philosophy and theology is the exact same or analogous to relationship between nature and grace. Nature always precedes grace, but grace always perfects nature. Same thing with reason and faith, right? Um, that's why Shaban will kind of get into this in his Mysteries of Christianity. Um, this is why um, people will speak of the autonomous nature of philosophy as per uh, JP2, Fides et Ratio, um, so on and so forth. So yes, it provides content, but it's not as if the content is subversive to the theological construct or ideas or um, the theological kind of orientation of theology as a science. It's just the fact that, like, you can't do geometry without basic arithmetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm getting what you're like, saying. Finding, this, finding the area of a triangle is impossible unless I understand the concept of addition. And not mm -hmm. only understand the concept, but know how to use it. If you tell me, yes, I know what addition means, and then I say, well, what's two plus two? And you tell me five, you don't know what the concept of addition is. So does this, does this kind of get into... Um the way in which we speak about God himself with analogous language, that in our contemplation of natural knowledge, that that is, in, in a sense, a certain uh, participation in uh, mm -hmm. divine knowledge. Does that kind of get into that analogously, at least? You, you can take it there. Yeah, there's definitely mm -hmm. ways that you could take it into the issue of, like, human knowledge is analogous to the divine knower. 
um, especially since we are rational animals, right? This is unique among the animal species, right? This is why like even Aristotle, who's like pre-Christianity will call like man a halfway point between the animals and gods, right? Like he says stuff like that. A lot of the Stoics say things like that. So yes, you could take it there into like how our knowledge and how we know things is analogous to God as knower. But of course there's this, like St. Thomas would say about um, the metaphysics of goodness, in prima pars about goodness in general how mm-hmm. is far removed and defective right is, is the language he uses there i would say if you're going to take that kind of approach on analogy that i would suggest using that type of language to describe the knowledge because one thing that like van till is right about is that god knows in a fundamentally different way than we do and in that sense mm-hmm. van till's not right he's just pandering what everyone else has always said yeah so yeah definitely definitely uh would use careful language there because it's hard because you don't want to say that there's no analogy because then knowledge equivocates and then you have a problem yeah so you definitely have to like ride that tightrope because if you say that okay it's clearly a problem then what is knowledge itself is there even such a thing as general knowledge that's like removed from the nature of a specific subject that is knowing um which i mean that's a fair question, I think, to a certain extent. Like, is there such a thing as knowledge outside of like a human knowing versus a dog knowing? Is there really mm-hmm. this third tertian quid called knowledge, called knowing? Like, is it a state of mind, whatever? Like, yeah, I mean, that's. It is interesting how Thomas is going to deal with um, non-human animals and their ability, um, their their uh, abilities to know. Because it does seem like he has these graded levels, like the oyster, which it's no intellectual mm-hmm. conception of anything, and then all the way up to like the dog, which kind of uh, yes. kind of can be said to learn because it's habituated in a certain way, and can be said to imagine in a in a sense, but it's not the same as uh, as discursive reasoning, which is the sole domain yes. of a of a human. And we have a very important question for you. Real quick. So the other Paul asks, oh, yeah. "What beer you got?" Uh, I've never had this one before. It's Yangling's Golden Pilsner. It's okay. I don't know. It's a little too bitter for me as a pilsner. Yeah. It. It's a American attempt at German beer, which is sad. Um, Americans just shouldn't try it. So that's what I have for beer. It's okay. I, I, I'm using this to water down um, the scotch that I have. So. <laughs> That that that's where it's at, boys. Is you gotta you gotta get some of this. So Here's you're using scotch. you're using your beer to water down your scotch. <laughs> well, I'm not a wuss. Might as well, right? What's the point? You want to water down the scotch <laughs> with water, or do you want to water it down with alcohol? Let's see. Um, necessary questions. Almost as important as the nature of knowledge. Almost as. Important. So I've been um, I've been actually wondering this myself. So um, so Pope Saint John Paul II in uh. Was it? Yeah, it was John Paul II and Fides et Ratio. He talks about how the church does not dogmatize a certain philosophical system. So how can we be yes. said to? Um, so so how does that relate with the church's or uh, theologians' use of philosophy? So I think that's actually super important. Um, I've been thinking about this too, um, because so I'm interested in like. Like convictionally, I probably would agree more with Thomas than with probably any other philosopher. Um, but 
philosophy, just like theology, has its own rules. Yeah. Right. And so there are ways to do philosophy that are just bad. Right. And I, and I think if it, it, you know this by being initiated into the practice of doing philosophy, it's the same thing with theology. Like if I take, um, I'm trying to think, Michael Horton, right? Take Michael Horton. And then we look at the way he does theology. Like if you're a theologian of any type of scholastic leanings or any other types of more traditional methods that would be historically used to do theology, you would look at the way he does theology and you would say, this just isn't, it's not quite right. Like he's, he's bending a rule somewhere, going around something. There's a problem. It's the same thing with philosophy. If I start saying, well, I have to dogmatize a specific philosophical perspective, um, you break the spirit of the thing, which is intricately connected with its process of being performed, as it were. So it's like, you know, it's like saying that, like, there's multiple ways to do addition. It's like, well, I mean, in a certain sense, sort of, but like, no, there's really just addition and that's how you do it. And it's like, well, there's one way to get this answer for this equation when there's really five ways. It's, it's, it's just a problem. It, it creates a kind of dogmatist spirit, which is unfounded for the nature of philosophy because the nature of philosophy by definition is reasons inquiry into the nature of things, which is dependent mm -hmm. upon the usefulness of arguments, evidence, so on and so forth, language, like the interpretation of language, the definition of terms, all of which things are malleable. They change over time. Not to say that they're, that they're like, do I know this really is an issue, which I guess you can, you can go there as well, play the skeptics card. That's fair. We can go there eventually if you want. Um, but nevertheless, if I, if I dogmatize philosophical perspectives, I risk causing a like performative self-contradiction in the nature of philosophy itself. Um, it would be like, I mean, I mean, in some ways, this is like the same question with Socrates. It's like, why is he allowed to contradict Homer? Right. Cause he'll quote Homer and it's like, well, Homer's wrong, but for the Greeks, that was their, that was their holy writings, you know? And so mm -hmm. it's the same thing. It's like, why is the philosopher allowed to say things or, or entertain things that might seem to some, not necessarily intrinsically, but they might seem to contradict certain things that we believe by faith or certain things that we come to by faith. Um, even if that contradiction is only apparent, it needs to be allowed as an autonomous practice because I can't have you know, the theologian coming over to me and saying, well, Michael, you're not allowed to ask that question. And it's like, no, in theology, I'm not allowed to ask that question because of a certain method that theology has because of what theology is. Right, because the objects are different. There's nothing under the sun that isn't questionable in a certain sense. Now, questioning God is a different issue. You know, questioning uh, this man's perspective on the nature of virtue, that I'm allowed to question. All I yeah, want. because God would um, be, um, the existence of God is also something which is in the realm of natural philosophy, really correct. natural theology itself. And it's, it's axiomatic and can't be denied. Sure. So, yeah, I, I am uncomfortable with the idea of, like, philosophy being used as, like, a tool for theologians to, like, um, shove out their ideas in a certain sense. Um, I think this is where we disagree a little bit, because I kind of see the manualists doing that a little bit. 
um, with Thomas, because sometimes I think you'll see the manualist do things where I'm like, I, I don't know if that like flows with the way St. Thomas would do philosophy even. Yeah. Um, and it's just like this little, like, I don't know, like maybe, maybe not, but I'm just, I have this hesitancy there. I'm worried about that. So. Yeah. So um, with um, like, for example, yeah. What really helped me with this was actually Francis Turretin when I was reading him talking about the relationship between theology and philosophy. And it isn't because he's he's good per se. It's because he was copying off of medieval scholastics. But he was he was yeah. talking about um, how we form propositions in theology and how philosophy can be helpful and that in um, in our reasonings, we can have an article uh, that is known through through nature. And then we can also have an article of faith and that we can create a syllogism in order to, um, in order to further our knowledge about theology by using philosophy. And he uses it in abhorrent ways. For example, he talks about that, uh, Jesus Christ, according to his humanity, uh, oh, yeah. is at the right hand of God. Um, that's a local place. Therefore he can't be in the Eucharist well can't be in the eucharist substantially so like how would how would you think about that sort of use not necessarily that application but that sort of use of um, philosophical propositions so like using philosophy to create syllogisms to like synthesize what we know by faith and theology and what we know by reason and philosophy i think is generally useful mm -hmm. but obviously has limitations um you know like when I try to be, I mean, this is because of the analogical element um, in our understanding of knowledge, but at the same time, it's like, there's just a limitations to what human beings can do. Um, I, I don't know. When you look at the concepts of systems as like a logical structure that you use to interpret reality, like the concept of system in the way that we use it is pretty much de facto modern, not going to lie. Um, and so when I look at St. Thomas and I look at the way that he does philosophy, I don't think he's building a system in the same sense at all. And yeah. so when you finding questions of coherence, I want to be careful to distinguish between finding coherence between two points that seem to be contradictory and finding two finding coherence between two points in the structure of a broader system that's like logical and a priori. Um, like a, like a logical a priori system that I use to find coherence as opposed to just discursive reasoning on a specific topic to bring the two points of question together. Those seem to be two different things to me. I could be wrong though, but they seem to be. So yes, you can definitely use philosophy um, to assist in one, finding ways to create coherence out of two seemingly contradictory theological points, but also between a philosophical point and a theological point. Um, but then also it can clearly be taken too far where philosophy begins to exert too much authority, right? Like in Turretin's case where he's starting, starting to deny something that seems to be, at least from history, from the history, like from theology as a discipline seems to be pretty unanimous. Um, but then at the same time, you have to be like, okay, fair enough. That is a possible objection that one could raise. Okay. So you could do it doesn't mean you should but you can now that you can do it we should find a way to answer it theologically 
while using philosophy as well, right? Because it's, I mean, it's natural for there to be objections to any position, right? I raise a position, someone's going to object to it. Yeah. Um, Should they? Maybe, maybe not. Should they not? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It's just going to depend on the person, the topic, so on and so forth. But if the position's true, we should be able to defend it. And so on the one hand with Turton, it's like, yeah, he uses it. And from our perspective, right, from a Catholic perspective, in a way that kind of leads to some absurdities. But at the same time, I think that's like, at the very least, it's a useful exercise for us to strengthen our understandings of philosophy and theology and how the two relate to one another. So yeah, specifically in, yeah, um, in, Turretin's, in Turretin's application, I think that is, that's really helpful because the way in which I see the, the Eucharistic debate happening in its relation with philosophy is first, there's the, there's the dogmatic fact that Christ is present. And within that proposition, Christ is present, we have the word presence. And then now we're going to have to use philosophy in order to discourse about what it means for something to be present. And then we have certain ways in which Christ can't be present, certain ways in which he can be present, ways that will cause absurdities. And this flowering of, um, of discourse over terms is is really what deepens our theological knowledge in the use of in use of philosophy am i kind of going in the right direction when it comes to the relationship yeah Yeah, no i think that's exactly right um i mean shaben i was talking with some friends about um this guy matthias shaben he's a a catholic theologian he's german catholic theologian yeah from like the 1800s i think um and in his mysteries of Christianity, he talks about like the relationship between reason and faith. And he talks about that, that very thing where it's like reason by its own nature cannot get to these supernatural heights. But once revelation has been given, it elevates reason beyond itself to new question. Um, and he's honestly not the, he's not the only person to discuss that or not even necessarily the first one. Um, um, Edith Stein in her book, uh, Finite and Eternal Being talks about this a lot in the beginning section, actually. Um, about how philosophy can be elevated by the introduction of, of theology. This is something that um, like people like Maritain and other Thomists from the 20th century also discussed pretty heavily as well. So I would say, yeah, that's definitely correct. Is like I can get you a theological proposition. Christ is truly present in the Eucharist. Like, and obviously operative in such a proposition is a concept of presence, which has to be useful to this context, right? Because the concept of presence that's implicit can't be contradictory to what the statement is intending to purport. That's a problem, right? So obviously we have to have some concept of presence that is adequate for the topic. And so, yeah, I think you're definitely on the right track. Pro- anal- analysis of propositions, bringing new horizons to the discussion of the theological issue. And then also, I think a big one, which a lot of people don't talk about a lot, um, which is this is kind of a Wittgensteinian emphasis that I've been kind of trying to draw in more but it's like the pursuit of clarity not necessarily like an analytic philosophical perspective of clarity being associated with like rigid structures of reasoning not necessarily that um i think wittgenstein's concept of clarity is much more fluid um and less methodologic in that kind of sense um but definitely the pursuit of clarity like what do i mean when i say that christ is present in the eucharist um, and this is where the substitution of terms becomes important. Well, he's substantially present, not accidentally present. Okay. He's locally present, not illocally, and so on and so forth. Um, and then the substitution of these terms really is like just following 
I mean, it's it's very similar to the way that language works just in general, where language is a game that you play. And so in this sense, it's one language game that we play and there's rules that accompany these types of propositions, right? And so the employment of the types of concepts we use need to match these rules. And those rules are kind of intimately connected with the practice of theology or the practice of philosophy or just the practice of speaking in general and the usage of language in general. And those need to all be brought into such a way that they don't present contradictions or ten unnecessary tensions. So yeah, that's that's kind of that's where I'm at with that. Okay. Sorry, a little, little long. No, you're good. Little, you're good. So yeah, we're gonna start uh unless you have anything else to say, we're gonna start to get into specific questions that were asked by my listeners. So do you have anything else to say or do you want to get into questions? Um I'm good. Whatever you want to do. Okay, so if you guys want to put questions. questions in the chat, then that's good. I'm going to scroll all the way up to the top. But I have a few that were asked on my Discord. So if you, um, so for a theologian, somebody well-formed or even moderately well-formed in theology, who wants to get a, um, actually, I don't even think you could be well-formed in theology without philosophy. But um, if if you want, if, let's say you're moderately okayly formed, you kind of know, um, basically you catechism. Got basics, but you're trying yeah, to catechism get level intermediate stage. What what books would you would you suggest as kind of intros? Let's say epistemology, metaphysics, logic, stuff like that, or even like philosophical method, just to learn okay. the habit of philosophy. What are some a few books that you would suggest? So if you're if you're explicitly looking to do philosophy in a way that relates it to theology, while I am a huge fan of just saying, well, just study philosophy on its own, practically that's not always um, possible because it's time consuming and people don't have a lot of time to, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't have a lot of time to sit down and read anymore these days. So <laughs> like being selective with your reading is important. So if you're looking, if you're a theologian and you're a Catholic theologian or some type of uh, scholastically inclined theologian looking to study philosophy more, I would say one, uh, look at texts that relate philosophy to the topics you're interested in, in the specific authors that you're interested in. So for example, let's say I'm interested in epistemology. One of the very few Thomistic epistemological texts that I could find is by this guy named uh, Frederick Wilhelmsen. Uh, man's knowledge of reality it's That's been a great recently book republished. by the way i love that yeah book. um it was out of print for a long time and then i i found it recently i've been wanting to buy this for years um and i found it and i picked it up so this would be a good one for epistemology um um you could get books like garagou lagrange's book reality um i think it's out of print these days um but if you can find it right this is kind of like a thomistic overview of all of Thomas's thought, which naturally will get into the philosophy as well. Um, if you're looking at philosophical method and you're a Catholic, um, uh, JP2's Fides et Ratio is necessary, um, required reading. You have to read it, I would say, um, to do it properly. And then after that, if you want to dig into more, I would do Alistair McIntyre's volume of essays, The Tasks of Philosophy. Specifically, um, he has an essay in here, uh, on Fides et Ratio. I think it's Philosophy Recalled to Its Task is the name of the essay, yes. Um, so I would look at stuff like that. Um, 
if you want to get into like metaphysics, right, then, I mean, you can go to stuff like uh, Real Essentialism by David S. Oderberg. He's a Aristotelian Thomist, right? Um, you could go with Maritain's kind of overview of Thomistic existentialism, existence and the existent. Um, this is really good as well. Um, there's a lot of books out there. There's so many books. So, I mean, it would really just depend on the topic and the person's reading level, because every one of those books that I listed, I would consider at different levels. So for example, Wilhelmsen's Man's Knowledge of Reality, I would say that's actually pretty basic, pretty, pretty easy to get into. Yeah, um, that's why I liked it. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was accessible. It's clear. It doesn't have unnecessary like tangential points or like really like nerdy like what like it's pretty just it's just straightforward this is what it is and like okay cool it's a quick study right um david odeberg's real essentialism is very advanced i wouldn't recommend that to someone who's just kind of starting out read a couple books and then pick that up um jp2's fit is at ratio i would feel like that's kind of also it's not basic but it's not hard you know like mm -hmm. it's got fruit and depth to it but it's not such that keeps the reader from getting into the text well so it could be useful for a variety of levels of people. And then going into like McIntyre's essay on it, I would say that's really great for intermediate and advanced readers um, because it allows them to kind of flex their own like philosophical mental muscles and kind of think about the text. And just because it's an encyclical doesn't mean it's infallible. So we can, we can question some of the things in it. We can push it out. We can say, well, maybe there's a tension, maybe there's a problem, maybe there's something to consider in this text. I think that's kind of what McIntyre does as a Catholic. He is a Catholic philosopher. And uh, as far as I know, a faithful one. So, um, yeah, those are just some books I'd recommend kind of general. So with um, trying to do philosophy. With like primary sources, what would you suggest? Like Aristotle's works, Plato's dialogues, like what, what are those good for? Are those good for um, informing mm. the philosopher or are those good mm -hmm. for building the habit of being a philosopher or both? Um, I would say Plato teaches you how to be a philosopher mm -hmm. because the dialogues are very much like you can't read the dialogues the way you read Aristotle. So platonic dialogues, when you read them, you are forced to ask the same questions that are in the dialogue and think about them yourself. And if you don't do that, when you read them, you're reading them wrong. So when Plato asks, what is justice in the Republic, right? If you're not sitting there trying to figure it out while you read that's not how it was. And I don't think that's how it's intended to be used. That breaks the whole point of the Socratic method. It's why there's not direct answers in the books. So Plato teaches you how to philosophize, how to be a philosopher, how to attain the, the philosophical spirit, as it were, right? Or the philosophical attitude. Aristotle will give you the content to philosophize with. So definitely read Plato's dialogues, um, definitely the major ones, and also the Republic. Um, and not just like the last days of Socrates from Penguin Classics. No, read, read like his, uh, read Cratylus, right, on language. Read uh, Lysis on friendship. Read um, Mino, right, Symposium, right. Read some of the more advanced ones that deal with more widespread top, widespreading topics like love, right, or virtue, or how is virtue taught, right, Mino. Um, things like that. That are more. Those are more. They stretch you, right? They, they make you tougher, philosophically speaking. Aristotle is good to study because I think largely he's correct in many ways. And then where he's not, he's still a good conversation partner. Um, 
And so then it's just a matter of once you go through that, you should start there. And then you should find the good philosophers that are subjectively attractive to you. Um, because while philosophy is something that we pursue by reason, it also relates to like the mean of virtue is subjective to the individual. The same thing will happen with philosophy itself. Like I'm attracted to certain philosophers that other people aren't going to be attracted to because of like my personality questions that I like have as a person. And this kind of gets into like the existential nature of philosophy where philosophy is like, it is made to like answer questions about the fundamental questions about the universe. And if you don't pursue it that way, you're doing it wrong. And so you have to like have skin in the game, right? If you're just doing this for like, ah, funsies, like whatever. It's like, I mean, you can do that. Sure. Um, but at that point, you're just training to be a sophist and that's not a philosopher. Mm. Um, like this isn't something that you study. So you can just go like sell yourself to teach it to other people. Um, you know, you're, we're not well, rhetoricians. Do. Yeah. Well, they're whores. I mean, that's, what that's true. Um, <laughs> you know, like, you know, that's interesting. That's something that philosophy and theology have in common because theologians who sell their gifts for money are also called whores yeah. by the prophet Jeremiah. So mm -hmm. there you go. Yeah. So I mean, do you think, um, do you think this is just because you actually brought this up to me? Because if you guys didn't catch it, we went to uh, the same undergrad. Um, so, do you think that Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle were Christians? Oh, okay. Um, I think, okay, this is a funny one. Uh, I think Socrates definitely has an interesting position um, in the world as it were, um, especially if you read Justin Martyr. I just don't understand what would motivate, uh, not what would motivate, but how could uh, a person without some type of assistance from God attack the, op the like oppose the worship of demons to the point of death? Um, either he is the most naturally virtuous man that has ever existed, or he had some assistance somewhere. Um, and the idea of a daemon, like which in Greek, it's just spirit. It doesn't mean demon. That's not the meaning. It just means spirit um, or messenger even, uh, depending on the time period in uh, Greek language, the Greek language you're talking about and also the context. Um, but he has this daemon, which tells him what to do. And it tells him to oppose the worship of demons and then argue for there being one God that all people should worship and that all people know exist. And I'm like, okay. And then he's like, yeah, that one God is simple, eternal, infinite, all good, all wise, all beauty. And symposium, he says that. Um, and you're like, okay, that's, huh. Okay. Interesting. And then he's just willing to die for it just randomly. And he doesn't fear death. Um, which kind of contradicts the Psalms or the Proverbs. If you think about it, how the wicked, the wicked are afraid of, of death, right? It's something that terrifies them. They, they flee when none pursues stuff like that. Um, but Socrates mm -hmm. is just like, no, I'm just going to sit in here in this jail cell and wait for them to give me the hemlock. I don't care. And it's like, Socrates either that man was like, a boss. Yeah. Either he was the most virtuous man ever, like naturally speaking, that could, mm -hmm. that we have knowledge of. Um, or, man, he got some help. And then also, I mean, I don't know. I wonder about, like, if, if 
Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, like if they died because they were before the coming of Christ, did they go to such thing as limbo or something of that nature? Uh, yeah, or I Christ think of, would have come and pre preached to the captives. So if you, Peter. I, I pointed this out to you um, a few weeks ago, but if you read the catechism of the council of, I mean, not the catechism of the council, the catechism of the Catholic church, it talks about yeah. how men before the coming of Christ, especially are naturally saved through the Noahic covenant made with all of creation. And sometimes yeah. when I think of Socrates, Plato and Aristotle, and this is explicitly made in, um, in Justin Martyr and some of the apologists and later yeah. uh, church fathers, it seems like there's this uh, kind of like Job like spirit or Job like situation mm -hmm. going on with yeah. those three. Well, I mean, Job's a Gentile. Mm -hmm. Job's not, he's living in the time of Abraham. He's not related to Abraham, but he was righteous before God. And he was a priest. He offered sacrifice yep. somehow. I have no idea um, how, but he did. Yeah, I mean, either. I'm like, okay, what the, what does that mean? How does that work? So many questions. But at the same time, very clearly, like, he's righteous before God and vindicated. He did not sin. People who read Job as Job having sinned. Now, like, you're taking the position of his friends who are yeah. like, they're so heavily rebuked by God, God won't even let them repent directly to him. They mm. have to repent through Job at the end of the book. So, like, okay, like, so, yeah, I think there's something similar there with them. Does that mean, like, they're de facto, like, saved? I don't know. Um, I mean, it would be nice. I think it would be unfitting for those men who have seen most clearly the light of nature to be not at least afforded the opportunity to accept or reject the light of grace in a sense yeah. of like, like the external preaching of like Christ as the logos to them. Like imagine what Socrates would have done with like, if he ever like was walking the earth and encountered Christ, You'd have been imagine a that conversation, imagine that conversation. Like that would have been amazing. And I don't think Socrates would have rejected him. I honestly don't. Um, because I think Christ would have like, like when, when, you know, when Pilate says what is truth to Christ and, you know, like clearly in the gospel of John, he's like, I am the truth. Like if Christ said that to Socrates, what Socrates heard would have been so much more profound than I think we usually give him credit for. Like what Socrates would have heard when Christ said, I am the truth, mm -hmm. like I am truth itself. Like Socrates would have seen Christ as like literally God. Yeah. He, like that would have told him you are God. If, if you are what you are saying, that means you're literally God. Um, so yeah, I, I think that would have been cool. I think Peter Kreef's done some stuff like that where like Socrates and Jesus talk or something like that. He's done some like yeah. dialogue books like that, which are usually pretty cool. So if you're what's really, what's really out. interesting is, um, is Davenant actually had a, had a talk with some of the Davenant fellows and they talked about Jesus as philosopher is that we kind of miss that, that nuance of the gospels where Jesus in many points is acting as a philosopher when he talks to people. And there's kind of like a dialogue type thing going on between Jesus and some of the people and having followers. He's kind of like the, uh, the cynics uh, yeah. as the wandering philosopher with a band of followers. Yeah. yeah. More very similar to Socrates, like the gadfly. 
mm-hmm. right? Socrates was the gadfly to like the the Athenian governmental structure. You know, Christ was the gadfly to the religious leaders. You know, and it's like, I mean, yeah, Christ definitely like gives you natural like insights. Yeah. Like, for example, he's like, he's like, you know, which of you, like when your children asks for food, gives him like a serpent, a snake, you know, like that's a natural point. He's making a point about like human nature and how there is a natural like paternal desire to care for and keep safe your children. Right now, that's not to say that people don't violate that and go against that natural order. But it is a general rule that like, yeah, parents want their children to be safe and well cared for and fed and right. I mean, like, and this is, this is a natural point. Like, it's very like, it's not, there's nothing supernatural about, about that rhetorical. He's using a natural, like idea and observation rhetorically to further strengthen the theological point that he's making in the context. Mm -hmm. But the natural point that he's drawing in is, is on its own terms, just like, yeah, parents want their children to be safe. You know, there's this virtue of parenthood that you, you might call it that, like, yeah, like, duh, it's like a potency, right? So is Jesus, habit you can possess. is Jesus the new Socrates too? Is he typological, I, is yeah, Socrates typologically yeah, Jesus? I don't, see, I don't see why not. Okay, so we have another question. So this is a very specific question, and I answered it to the to the man who asked but you'll be able to explain the why behind this a lot better than I could. So with the, um, with the difference, maybe maybe. we'll see, maybe with the difference, this is, this is completely natural. So you probably, probably can. So with the differences between uh, men and women, um, Mm -hmm. is that difference accidental or is it substantial? That's a dirty question. Uh, Is maleness an accident? Well, if you say it's substantial, that means there's no, mm, that's, no, it can't be substantial because human beings, according, well, okay, if I'm going to operate off of St. Thomas's understanding of the human person, I would have to say no, because human beings, or a, um, a thing can only possess one substantial form. Mm-hmm. And so if maleness is a substantial form, then there's obviously the problem of, well, male is a, is a disjunctive along the lines of a, a species, you know, tiger's a tiger whether it's male or female tiger is obviously the substance and then male female is like a qualification upon that substance so i'd have to say the same thing about human beings is that it's some type of accidental quality how that works i'm not sure but if you say substance i think you get into the problem of there having to be two substantial forms in the same uh entity and that would be i mean not necessarily bad i just seems unfitting to me it seems like that would cause problems somewhere but I don't know where. So I would say, I would definitely say accidental. Um, Cause I think being human is more fundamental than being male or female. Not to say that you mm-hmm. can be a transgender or anything like that, but just like, like what, what is more important being like, 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 like in terms of when I say sexually, I mean like in terms of like biology, right? Mm-hmm. Like your sex is not more important than your essence or your nature um like it qualifies your nature in a certain sense for sure yeah right this is why like men and women have totally different like operating motivators for like psychology and like interpersonal relationships right generally speaking like they're they're not similar at all but accidents do that on this kind of stuff 
but accidents do qualify things and alter things. So yeah, I would say, I would say accidental. I actually think Jordan Peterson on this kind of stuff is like hundred percent right about the way he wants to relate men and women mm. and how being a male qualifies like your personhood, but doesn't like present a substantial alteration. That balance is really hard to strike. And I think from a psychological perspective, as limited as it is, is he's really good at it. So I really like his stuff on it. So we have a very important uh, question. So are your books on your bookshelf fake cardboard <laughs> books? Okay, so um, the person who asked that question is making a, that is a double entendre because that is a reference to a conversation we were having. No, they're not, they're not cardboard, they're real. They're real books. They're real books. They're real, they're not cardboard. They're real. And also a second they're question, real. are you Michael Lofton? No, <laughs> I, my, my, my name should be like on here somewhere, right? Hall, Lofton and Hall are not the same thing. I also don't mm. think I look anything like him either. Um, oh yeah, you two also, look completely different. He also didn't go to Reformation Bible College. So if he did, I'd be a little like, what the? He was a Presbyterian though. And, and you were a Presbyterian. So he must be the same person. Yeah, so yeah. James. Identification by association. He asks, how do you respond to the often repeated assertion coined by the late Stephen Hawking that philosophy is dead, also asserted by other proponents of scientism and idiocy? I added mm. the and idiocy part to that, by the way. Okay. So philosophy is dead. Okay. Um, Stephen Hawking. Yeah. Um, He's also dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> The problem with saying that philosophy is dead is that according to the scientific method, it's an unverifiable proposition. That's true. Saying philosophy is dead. Okay. So if you're, if, if you're a part of this group of individuals or thinkers who want to call themselves, uh, according to the terminology of scientism, right. Um, that's like a BS, like layman term, not gonna lie. Um, like the technical term is logical positivism. Mm -hmm. This is A.J. Ayer's language, truth, and logic, right? And the famous verification principle. No proposition, unless it is empirically verifiable, can be true or false. Problem is that proposition itself is unverifiable according to uh, empirical, empirical observation. And so it's self-defeating very clearly. Like it's just an obvious mistake. Um, so when I say philosophy is dead and then want to propose science uh, as something which takes its place, one, just a clear logical error. But I think that's cheap. I am satisfied with the answer to dismiss the position, but I think that's cheap. I want to go more deeper than that. Like there's a lot there. When I say philosophy is dead, what I am saying is that the social, cultural, ideological, artistic, aesthetic force that has driven the Western world for over 2000 years has died. I might as well just say God is dead. Because those are the two things that like produce meaning in our subjective experience of the world. I'm not talking mm -hmm. about objective meaning or, or value. I'm talking about subjective appropriation of that objective meaning and value. So when I say philosophy is dead, I've just presented you with a, uh, a valueless universe in which all that is is matter and motion. If you want to say philosophy is dead, I guess you can say that. I think it's stupid. Um, but if you do damn well better not be playing with with those words and like actually live it 
you better treat people like matter being moved by the laws of thermodynamics. Oh, none, like none of them you are. Better, you, you better not live as if there's some type of thing called love. To take a very Vantillian <laughs> phrase, none of them live according according to their worldview. Yeah, no. So scientism is like one of the most dangerous and destructive forces, I think, in the 20th and 21st century. Interestingly yeah. enough, Wittgenstein is very much against scientism, despite his reputation. Um, he's his in the Tractatus, for example, or the Tractatus Logico Philosophicus. It's his first work that he published in 1921. He has this section, I think it's in Tractatus 6.3, somewhere around there, where he critiques this concept of Newtonian explanation. Um, and he talks about how this idea of Newtonian uh, mechanism, mechanistic Newtonian laws, or somehow can completely explain the entirety work, the entire workings of the universe, leaving nothing left to explain. The idea of like a complete explanation of the thing, um, and he says like this is just it just is absurd. And um, I think like if you look at that those kinds of critiques of scientism, you'll you'll find really good stuff. Mm -hmm. Honestly, like some of the best critiques of scientism do come from people who lean postmodern. Not that I agree with their conclusions, but their critiques are usually viciously devastating. What do you think of Phaser? Because Phaser uh, has some critiques of scientism. Yeah, I've read them. They're good. They're good. Um, I enjoy them. Um, I think Oderberg's more useful with that in his real essentialism. And Fesser admits that in his introduction to contemporary scholastic metaphysics or whatever it's called. Mm -hmm. um, he talks about it in the preface that he says his book is basically like a shortened and easier version of, mm -hmm. of uh, Oderberg's. So, yeah, I, I, scientism produces all kinds of problems, whether it be linguistic, logical, moral, evaluative, grammatical, so on and so forth. But nonetheless, I think. If we're to view philosophy as a way to live, a way of life, which is how I would want to view it, um, partially, if not primarily, it's an unlivable way of living. Like, you can't do it. Like, it's like, like, okay, so like all the viewers, okay, picture uh, your, someone you love, wife, child, mother, father, okay, remove anything unique, distinctive, evaluative about them look at them only as a matter of fact only as an object of matter being moved by basically the laws of the universe which are entirely impersonal and non-valuative non there's no value here it's just matter in motion power that's all it is look at them and now try to like try to explain to me how they act towards you and their, their behavioral idiosyncrasies. Like how do those even make sense? Um, and like, just be honest about it. I, I just think a lot often bad philosophy comes from just not being honest with your experiences. Um, so yeah, scientism is dangerous. I would very, very strongly avoid it. So we have an objection now. So I don't like the common equivalence of philosophy with just all fields that have to do with theory far too broad from its classical conception, in my opinion. Uh, I never said that it was strictly related to theory. In fact, I've like, I think several times noted how it relates to practice. I would take something similar to, I think it's Cicero's view in one of his um, letters or works or tractates. He talks about 
philosophy as being theoretical and practical, uh, similar to the way the reformed scholastics would talk about theology as theoretical and practical. I would say philosophy is very similar. Um, it's interesting that that's the objection because I used to hold such a view where philosophy was very strictly related to theory. Um, mm -hmm. But now I would say, actually, it's I think it's much more connected to practice than theory in certain ways. I think Aristotle kind um, of, in his metaphysics, the introduction to, well, not introduction, but book one in his metaphysics, I've been reading yeah. and reflecting on that text recently. And Aristotle, I think, would agree with you that it isn't a strict uh it isn't strict theory. No, it's not. Also, I, I, I even have a problem with the way the questions frame theory and practice. Mm -hmm. um, it's as if that you have to have like, I feel like there's a rationalist, like, not necessarily that this person's a rationalist, but like the way the question has been formulated. I wonder if there's a rationalist assumption that's like stuck into the question, which is practices have to have theoretical groundings. Mm -hmm that is a rationalist assumption like the, like theory never really needs to be divorced from practice until there's a problem in the practice i think they might be mixing up uh practice and art you know how kind of that aristotle too. describes art yeah because art would have to have a theoretical theoretical ground. i guess element. it doesn't even have to have um it's not a theoretical it a ground it's 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 more like a theory that's like it's because an art doesn't even have art doesn't even have a knowledge of causes just a mm. just a kind of uh, framework of being able to bring about certain effects consistently. Not even a knowledge of that cause, knowledge, of, knowledge of cause would be wisdom. True, and all, but knowledge of causes, right? In in the way that Aristotle wants to talk about about as wisdom, is always very intimately connected with with practice, with doing mm. things, right? It's not like like. When Aristotle says knowledge of causes, and then, like um, Kant will talk about theory, not the same thing at all, not even close. Like Kant's thinking about this a priori thing that cannot touch human experience because then it will be sullied, right? He yes. talks about this in like the groundwork of metaphysics and morals and stuff like that. Um, whereas like Aristotle's idea is like it ha if it doesn't touch practice, it almost doesn't make sense. And um, I think that's where like the postmoderns do have really good points here is like, yeah, like this, this desire for a pure theoretical perspective in philosophy is just kind of bad. It's, it's a bad idea. It doesn't work. It's unfitting. Um, it divorces. It, I think it's a leftover of a kind of scientific rationalistic perspective from the Renaissance onwards, especially like a little later enlightenment philosophers. So, so we have a, um, a friend, John Politis, he's an Anglo-Catholic bot that comes, he's not a bot, he's a real person, I think. I haven't been able to find this, but he, he, <laughs> he now comes every single stream and uh, he gives us some wonderful uh, Anglo-Catholic propaganda. So I'm not going to go, I have to skip all that stuff. Okay. He, he wants to know whether your books are real. They, yes, they want to, real. they want to know. Can you prove it? Can you can you grab one off the shelf? Okay, we'll believe you. We'll believe you. Skepticism is lame. Not necessarily. Depends on what kind. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna cover this for like a minute. Um, yeah, go for it. It's all you. So so yeah, this this comes up a lot. This has come up pretty 
pretty frequently when people talk about my conversion to Catholicism to say it's emotional and not intellectual. And I think that's a false dichotomy when we think about uh, what it means for a person to make a decision or to assent to a certain proposition is a person when they assent to a proposition isn't necessarily uh, only engaging their intellect, but they're also engaging their will and affections. And what I wanted to highlight in my in my open letter was that my conversion to Catholicism was at first intellectual, but I had a blockage of assenting to those propositions because my will and my affections weren't um, completely engaged. And there was uh, kind of a lumen gratia, which, which not only enlightened my intellect, but also brought my affections into and will into subjection to those propositions that I had um, saw as true. So there you go. And that's a very Newmanite idea right there. When Newman talks about the grammar of ascent, I think that's a very important, um, important work. And since you seem to know a lot about Newman, because you're saying Newman did it for intellectual, you should probably read his works. Okay. And this is what everybody's it's... feeling right now. Dang. Um... <laughs> Okay, so the, the other Paul um, responded. He said, not that you said that it's only theory, but how philosophy is often taken to assume all theoretical fields so that to do something as simple as knowing how to think in a basic sense is philosophy. I see. Okay, so the other Paul, I think his question is, is about the scope of philosophy being proper to, yeah, that one. Interesting. Um, hmm. I guess... That's interesting. That's an interesting, interesting question. Well, well, with philosophy, uh, you have to, I, I think what's really helpful is actually, again, book one of metaphysics is philosophy is really, or metaphysics specifically, is a knowledge of the first cause. So that, in a sense, mm -hmm. in potentia, in, in potence, is going to contain all of the other sciences within it as the, as the first cause of, of all science. So you're really thinking about mm, knowledge itself and contained in knowledge itself is knowledge of particulars, which are going to be these particular uh, sciences, such as whatever it may be, and knowledge of particular causes yeah. which flow from the first cause. So that's just my thoughts on that. Yeah, I definitely think um, something that I would also say here is, if, okay, so let's just say from what I hopefully I'm understanding his response properly. But let's just say that, okay, this, then philosophy is not taken to assume all theoretical fields. Um, and so it has limitations. I agree it has limitations, but it seems like he wants to say there's more than just what I was kind of getting at. Mm -hmm. So then I have a couple questions. One, how would you justify the limitations? Where would they be? Like, what, what, how, where would the limitations be? How do you justify those, et cetera? But then second, what do you do with um, our knowledge and understanding of the things outside of those limitations. So for example, if like he says uh, something as simple as knowing how to think, right? If the knowing how to think is not philosophy, then what is it? Like you're just going to end up having another, another, another name for some other thing that attaches itself to this issue of 
knowledge in general or the knowledge of all things or the whatever you want to call it like there's a lot of phrases i could use here um but then it's this is a debate in meta philosophy um which is like the nature of philosophy and what philosophy's purpose is and how it will work um you'll just get into a situation where you have okay well philosophy is limited to up here but all this stuff down here that used to be philosophy is now without any types of terminology that's useful so then how do i talk about it though and then how do i do it in a way that is methodologically distinct from doing philosophy you see that unless you want to just argue for some like extreme naive realism um where your naive realism just kind of overtakes any type of possibility of critical questions i suppose that's possible but i would be hesitant to do it in that manner so yeah that that's kind of i i see what he's getting at but it's it's tricky Okay, so does philosophy eliminate mystery when coupled with theology? I think this is a very common objection. Yeah, the answer is no, obviously. Um, philosophy is by definition limited to what human reason can know. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, mystery is not in the realm of, of philosophies? Not properly. R reason... Okay. I think it depends on the definition like, for, of mystery. Is mystery is a well, very so, um, complicated term. It's yeah it's tricky so like on the one sense in the one on the one hand philosophy outside of its engagement with theology is limited to what human reason can know about the natural world it's limited to the natural world in that sense not that the natural world doesn't contain supernatural elements it's just it doesn't for example allow me to know that there is a trinity apart from revelation or the incarnation or things of that nature right those are articles of faith right like this is thomas's but this is pretty much the dogmatic catholic position as far as i'm aware could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it is. Um, so then when we get into that, so then when philosophy then engages with theology, right, and is brought into those elements of mystery, those areas of mystery, how do we understand them? Um, when philosophy is coupled with theology, the pursuit of clarity, I think, actually will force you to rely more on mystery. Mm -hmm. um, because when I clarify terms clarification just tries to get down to the best way to express it that avoids contradiction and confusion of the concepts involved but that doesn't mean that there there's an assumption and an assumption in what i was saying there that people i think often read in that's not there and there's the problem with people reading Wittgenstein as well is just because i'm pursuing clarity means that i assume that there's the possibility of complete clarification of all possible propositions like some type of ideal language that's not that doesn't follow so just because philosophy is pursuing clarity doesn't mean that it will by necessity remove mystery it just under it depends on what you think clarification entails and so i would say it doesn't entail the analysis or the crystallization of all possible propositions into like utterly clear language so yeah i would say no it does not um simply because of the epistemological differences just like um nature never removes the supernatural from grace when grace assists it so then why would why would philosophy do the same thing with theology i think it, it also forgets that analogy that i made earlier about uh, the relationship between philosophy and theology okay so politis i'm going to do a little roasting here before we get to the next question so he says and thomas beckett said thomas beckett said no so Thomas Beckett, along with rapist priest, was castrated, vasectomied, and beheaded. It's interesting they talk about vasectomies. 
because uh, which community was the first one to approve contraceptives? So sounds like you guys have dogmatized vasectomies. And also, Thomas More and John Fisher were castrated and beheaded for accessory to buggery. So tell me That's the sexuality. Tell me the sexuality of most of your bishops, real quick. Sir, Tom Sir Thomas More. Yeah, that he was. Sir he was Thomas, not castrated. Sir Thomas More was was executed for um, for he was trying, executed for treason. Actually, yeah, for treason for his uh, for his secret beliefs that um, he actually didn't really um, let anybody know. Yeah, about. it was it was his unwillingness to sign the Act of Supremacy, which was passed by um, Henry VIII. Mm -hmm. It had nothing to do with anything sexual. For I mean, the only thing that had to do with it sexually was that he disapproved of the divorce and remarriage. And if that's what he's being executed for, that's kind of a virtue. Um, and then I don't believe he was castrated. I had to teach this like a couple weeks ago for my Renaissance history class that I teach for middle school. I don't expert. remember finding anything about him being castrated. I, I, I like Thomas More a lot, so I feel like I would have uh, would have run across that. I think yeah, I have no, a Thomas I, More I icon in here. I do have a Thomas More icon in here. It's right up there. Thomas More is cool, dude. I like Thomas More. He's he really, is. He's really have funny. you ever read his? He's super uh, funny. Have you read his dialogues with Luther? No, I've read Utopia though. I've read Utopia twice now. It's good. It's funny. I want to read his other stuff. Okay, let's see if we. Uh, this is something everybody shares. Penguin classics suck. Yeah, why are you guys reading in uh, in English? Oh my gosh! <laughs> Boomer moment. What's a bot? <laughs> okay, I think Anything I think I else? saw. Oh, Augustine one? called Plato the pagan saint. I would call him that too. I knew there was other questions I saw. Um, Philosophy is dead. Your mom is dead. Oh, what am I eating? Uh, uh, my wonderful wife. Uh, I told her she could do this, actually. She uh, she brought me in some soup for, for dinner. I told her it was an interview, so I would actually have some time to kind of chill and eat. So that is what I'm eating. She, I think she made potato... It's like a potato, cheese, bacon sort of soup. And then she puts some sour cream in there. It's delicious. Got a good wife. Michael's met her on a lot of occasions. Yeah. I like Lexi. She's cool. She's pretty chill. Okay. Yeah, we already answered that. Mm -hmm. I was misunderstood. All philosophers are misunderstood. Get used to it. Oh, no. <clears throat> <laughs> no keep going the 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 other paul matters keep going down <laughs> um, the other paul did he, nothing wrong justice for the he, other paul burn militant oh thomas at this. actually actually i don't know if you saw this uh matthew but um there was some rad trads on twitter calling for my burning at the stake i was like I how are you gonna that. how are you gonna do that. do that from your from your mom's basement you don't have a car um, um, I like the other Paul just said, let's call it thinking at 809 in response to kind of like, what would you call it? Um, when I said that about philosophy, that was interesting. Like, I mean, I guess you could just call it thinking, but then it goes again into like, is, are you thinking well or poorly? And if you're thinking well, then by what criteria are we evaluating this logic? If that's the case, then it's philosophy. So I, I just don't see a way around having philosophy be ultimate in its scope, in its scope about the natural world. Um, 
Good question, though. Like, it, it, it's a difficult topic. I agree. It's tricky, so, but I don't see a way around having philosophy be ultimate in its scope of the natural world. And then if you call other things by other terms, you just end up meaning philosophy without using the term. And at that point, just call it what it is. So how much do you know about um, like epistemology? Is that is that an interest of yours? A little enough. Okay. Enough. Yeah, because they're starting to discuss about uh, the rationality of well, the involvement of emotions in assenting in propositions. Reason. Yeah. So what do you what do you think? I mean, we got Aaron, James. They're they're saying a few things about that. I mean, to say that the will is not involved in the operations of the intellect destroys the unity of the subject pretty obviously mm -hmm. to me so if that's what you're going to argue for then you can go be a cartesian and enjoy your ultimacy of reason boom right? roasted like you i mean it's just i feel i feel like it's a problem of confusion by reading the enlightenment philosophers and their critiques and problems back into the ancient and medieval philosophers and thinking that they're responding to the same questions this is part of my problem with like viewing philosophy as like a type of perennial thing It's like, no, it's not perennial in the sense of like, they're not all asking the same damn questions. Like Kant's not asking the same thing that Thomas is. Mm. Aristotle's not asking the same questions that Descartes is. They're not. Um, so in that sense, it's not perennial. What makes it perennial is that it's talking about something which is perennial, which is life, like human existence and the questions that accompany it. That's what makes it perennial. But the historically conditioned way in which those questions are articulated and asked are not perennial. And I think this like anti-historical bent in doing philosophy causes us to like conflate things that then make us read other people as being like hyper-rationalistic or hyper-non-rationalist or hyper-irrationalist when it's just like it's absurd to suggest either one because one, those categories didn't exist for that person. Two, they're decontextualizing the author that they're making the point about so on and so forth it's just it's a mess but like on the nature of reason and emotion like clearly the unity of the subject is more important than the favoring of the will over the intellect um when it comes to intellectualism and voluntarism debate in this classic period i don't know i go back and forth it's tricky i'm i'm unsure i, I wonder if there's a third way in which they're somehow um equal i'm not sure I, I don't know. It's tricky. It's really tricky. It's a really complicated debate. It's really tricky and hard to sift through because the language is super technical. And just because like, uh, it's just, it's hard. It's a hard one, man. And I haven't read about it in a while, but um, yeah, you definitely have to maintain the unity of the subject over all else. So whatever you do, as long as that's what, as if you can sustain that, I'm willing to engage with it. If it destroys the unity of the subject, it's just like, is it worth it to even talk about? Um, so. Big talk from Dang. the gay bar of denomination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, guys, please, I'm begging you, join the ordinariate. I just um I just went to a little bit of a of a two-day trip and uh hung out with some priests from the ordinariate and um and got to talk to them a lot in the ordinary it's doing some amazing things so i'm at an ordinary parish in orlando as well and it's great it's awesome it's a great place to be okay here's here's a good one uh 
I, I guess I can answer that first, and then you could you could do your thing. So is there a way to reconcile the Trinity with divine simplicity without resorting to modalism? I really like the doctrine, but I haven't seen a good answer to this. So you have to ask the question of um, of the relationship between person, the person and the essence, because there is no real distinction between the uh, the person and the essence. So it's not that we're saying that there's three parts of the Trinity. Because all, um, all the only thing that distinguishes the persons is the relations of origin, not necessarily anything uh, dividing up the substance. So the one simple essence is uh, is the the hypostasis. Of the Son is um, begotten from the Father in eternity, and then they together spirate the the Spirit. There is this isn't the dividing up of the the essence itself. So it really does keep with simplicity. If we were going to deny simplicity on, on these grounds, then you would have tritheism. Because then you would be saying that there's something besides the relations which distinguish the persons. Hmm. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts um, on this? Yeah, I suspect there's an uh, improper understanding of simplicity at operation. Um, mm hmm Sometimes people interpret Thomas as holding to something that like, like if you follow like people like Jay Dyer or people like that, they talk about like this absolute divine simplicity. I, I see him. this a lot. Don't do not follow him. The man is regardless of whether he's intellectually right or wrong. I think it's pretty clear that he's intellectually incoherent. Um, he's not a moral man. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to take advice from someone who does some of the things that I've seen and heard of him doing um so don't do that but um yeah i would i would uh papa guru four i would definitely say go back and reread saint thomas on simplicity um and then see how he speaks about the trinity in those contexts and then also his treatise on the trinity that would be a really good place to see like why i'm sure there will be stuff in there that would make the connection explicit on why this does not resort to modalism yeah um if you uh yeah. papa papa grew four if you i love the name if you uh dm me on twitter or email apologiaanguicana at gmail.com or find some way to reach me i can send you the specific um objections and then responses to those objections about this issue because i'm pretty sure he explicitly answers this objection so matthew has a very important question are women rational <laughs> For the mean no no know that uh not i have no i got the statistics back from youtube and i have a 95 percent following among males in their 20s so yeah i mean youtube <laughs> i think i think this is funny like peterson's mentioned this a lot um youtube is a predominantly like male dominated like platform really um mm -hmm. yeah so when people if you watch like interviews with him where people like well, the majority of your like, you know, followers are, are, are males in this age group. And don't you think that you're like giving them like a violent message, blah, 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 blah. He's like, well, you're skewing this because YouTube is already a male dominated like, like structure. The fact that I have a majority male um, like listenership or whatever doesn't mm. necessarily mean that it's the majority of people listening to me are male. It's just that YouTube, which is how I happen to blow up is majoritively male. It doesn't mean that there's any type of essential co connection between my content and like male psychology. 
Um, it's really interesting like because so. it's the opposite way with Instagram because I did some social media work for, for a friend and yeah, he, in, well, did, he didn't want to go on Instagram because most of his following that he was targeting were young men and young men yep. don't really, um, aren't, aren't really on Instagram as much. And I see this with, with my wife and myself, like she likes the little like 60 second videos. And then I like the three hour live streams put on 2.5 speed on YouTube. Like that, that's, yeah. I think that might actually be one of the accidental differences uh, in the way in which men and women work because men have a much, have a much greater ability to be autistic, <laughs> to, <laughs> to be, to be focused very strongly on a single subject for a very long period of time. And that's a, that's a masculine virtue. And that's usually why males are able to, um, Achieve, achieve greater success in uh, philosophy and theology because it requires that sort of um, very narrow vision. And then women, um, they're able to oh, multitask they, they and it has uteruses. to do with motherings. Yeah, they have uteruses <laughs> and they're able like, to multitask because they have simple. to take care of uh, take care of children and they have a they much have a biological yeah, impulse toward in that. that and don't. that definitely shapes the way in which they think and then the, in the way in which they're able to uh, to have different strengths, different disciplines. So you look at certain disciplines, they're actually, um, especially in the humanities, and they're actually woman dominated. Go down to uh, um, the other Jay, poll. Metallurgical questions, dire. Oh my gosh. When he says the phrase, he doesn't know what he means. And this is what I was talking about. I think this is this, Actually, I think it. I think it's 95% <laughs> males in their 20s. And then um, it's probably a different. And then five percent, five percent males in their thirties. I don't yeah. think I've any women follow. Are any of you women listening right now? I have a, I guarantee that. Um, the answer is no. Them, <laughs> none of them. Okay, so how is there one ontological will in God? While the persons appear to do separate actions, this seems to require separate willings. But will is not hypostatic; it's a property of nature. Correct. Will is a property of nature, and um, and ad intra there is one unified will in God, but ad extra in the economic um, actions of the Holy Trinity, there are uh, there are three. So we, so properly so called, the Trinity has one will because it's a property of nature. But when it comes to relations to um, to creation and its created effects, we can we can speak of three wills ad extra improperly. So I think we're getting near the bottom here. I believe so. Okay, we are at the bottom. Do you have anything else to say, Michael? Dang. Um Yeah, no, I mean it was fun. Um Yeah, go study philosophy. Go uh think for yourself and don't just be a mindless quack these days. Um we live in we live in dark times and being able to use your your own damn brain is is very very useful. So I would encourage people to go and read and study philosophy for their for its own sake. Like knowing the world for its own sake is incredibly important, and studying history. And so I guess maybe I should clarify when I say study philosophy, I don't mean study philosophy in a way that ignores the historical setting or progression of philosophy. Like knowing the difference between, um, for example, like Wittgenstein in the twentieth century. Um, right. And like the questions and social issues that he's wrestling with because of his upbringing and so on and so forth. And knowing the difference between that and like 
St. Thomas's problems that he's dealing with, it's incredibly important to interpret them for one, but also it's incredibly important to interpret them um, like in the sense of like, what can I draw from them to like live my days? Because I mean, yeah, I don't want to say something that will get you uh, demonetized or any shit like that on YouTube, but uh, I'll like, get more patrons. The worst things you say. So, okay. So the worst <laughs> thing I say, okay. Um, like, all right. You know, like past couple weeks, a lot of documents have been leaked and have come out that are government approved, like classified stuff that's been declassified through a variety of, you know, legal practices, um, all legit about COVID and things like that. And it's just, man, we just went Alex Jones right here. It's true. Go look it up. Go look it up. Project Veritas. Go look up the documents. Um, Go look it up. Go look up news articles from Canada where military documents were released that state explicitly that they use the oppor- this op- this pandemic as an opportunity to practice uh, propaganda techniques. Go use um, militant info wars. That's um, I hate to be political, but like for legal reasons, my existence is a joke. So because um, I'm white anyways, um, like I'm just saying like, like it's crazy out there and one of the practical elements of philosophy is making you a critical person of Mm -hmm. other people's desire for, um, for uh, consent and agreement. Yeah. Philosophy is really forming a habit. Yeah. You're becoming a type of person. And it's important. I think it's a type of person that we need these days because like when I'm socially like engaging in a circumstance where there is a social clue to derive my assent or consent or submission to something which i have a intellectual disagreement about being confident enough to be like nah i'm not going to do that is important um like it's called not being a, a wuss you know um it's called having like a virtue having a spine like you know like it is i'm sure there's a virtue that we could uh courage maybe maybe fortitude, fortitude. um maybe magnanimity greatness of soul right like like there's virtues here that are important and that are severely lacking in our society and that's why you know you could convince the whole world to wear two freaking masks and you know isolate themselves from anyone except from like people that they live with and even then wear masks in their own freaking apartment or in their own cars and they're by themselves um like don't be a freaking goat man or a sheep don't be a freaking idiot just yeah think where can, we, where, can we, uh, where can like, we? Where can we find you? Just think. Like if, uh, you if can the listeners wanna wanna find you, talk to me or whatever. More, well, not talk to you, yeah. but like read read stuff you might be writing about sure. or. So I have a blog. Um, it's not super active at the moment because I'm busy. I'm married. I have a kid on the way. I'm working, teaching, trying to go to grad school. So my blog's a little a little slow. But I am posting stuff. I am working on stuff. I have like thirty something drafts in the works um you are an autist (laughs) i am an autist um i get i get ideas all the time so you can go to the rational animal um i can have you put the link in the description yeah yeah um, send me the link in the description yeah i can do that um so you can go see me there um i actually have an instagram that i actually use that's actually my social media platform of choice actually interestingly enough um woman i think it's eh, i just don't 
I, I'm not an auditory person. So listening to like lectures just doesn't get me. Like I do it for enjoyment, not for learning. I, I need, I, I like text in silence, text or death and, or text and death metal in my headphones, one of the two. Um, so you can find me there. I post stuff when I, when I uh, am working or reading sometimes interesting quotes. Uh, but yeah, the blog would be the primary way to get a, to see what I'm working on and get a hold of me and stuff like that. Or um, actually, now I think about it, I have a bunch of papers on Academia Edu, um, and I can also send you a link for that. So those are two ways: my blog and Academia. Yeah, I look forward too. to in the future doing more partnering on. stuff because I'm sure yes. it seemed like it seems like I had a lot of engagement in this in this one. So guys, don't forget. Um, Become patrons, uh, follow, subscribe. I'll have my link tree in the description below. You know, click everything, buy everything, um, uh, throw hundreds at me, do whatever. Uh, share it with your mom, share it with all your friends, um, share it with your wife. Actually, don't share it with your wife. You don't want to do that. Um, <laughs> joke, joke. I'm sorry. Joke. Do you not want your wife to have the virtue of reasoning? <laughs> something we no, have no, to no. learn I'm, I'm scared <laughs> i'm scared i'm scared they'll see michael hall and then have uh oh yeah have desires to to leave their man because they're like well look at this reason this very well-formed philosopher right here and then maybe yeah. maybe i'll go from a hundred percent men to 99 percent men who knows maybe i'll get some Oof. women followers Oof. Okay, uh, I will see you guys all. I guess I'll do a video on uh, Tuesday. Sorry, I didn't get a second blog in this week, but um, life happened, and I was hanging out with some ordinary priests, so I do not regret it. Okay, I'll see you guys. Bye-bye. No,